Keith asked me, like, hmm. what are you waiting for to like change the things that matter to you? And I really have a good answer for that. What was I waiting for? To be more passionate, to know more about the community that I lived in my entire life, to know more about organizing. There really wasn't anything. Welcome to Connection Request. I'm Joel Lehman. Today on the show, I'm chatting to Minnesota State Senator Aaron May Quaid, who is also the Special Projects Advisor at Gender Justice. She's the third Black woman ever elected to the Minnesota legislature, and when she was elected representative in 2016, she was the only Democrat to flip a state House seat from red to blue. She also made national headlines in her last campaign for incredibly giving a speech while in labor. One of the main reasons I wanted to chat with her is that in the U.S., I think we focus far too much on national politics. While so much of the policies that actually impact our lives are made at the state and local levels. The senator shares her organizing origin story as well as tells the story of how now Attorney General Keith Ellison gave her the initial nudge to run for office. Plus why she sees ADHD as her superpower, why she feels our political labels aren't always helpful, and why working in customer service jobs were the single best thing that prepared her to serve as a state legislator. We also unpack the historic legislative season in Minnesota and her plans to regulate the heck out of artificial intelligence. As always, get in touch with me with feedback or thoughts on the show. I love hearing from you. Okay, here's my conversation with Senator Aaron May Quaid. So I am a Minnesotan. I am black and queer. I'm a wife and a mom. I call myself an elder millennial. I very much identify with that. I am a Minnesota State Senator, and that is one of my jobs. And then I'm also an advocate, or I work at a nonprofit, a legal nonprofit called Gender Justice, where I'm the special projects advisor. And so we seek to advance gender equity through the law. We do civil rights litigation, public education, narrative change work. And a lot of that work is focused around trans and LGB rights and reproductive health rights and justice. So, you know, not a lot going on in those areas. Just a little bit of work there. That leads me to my first question, which is in reading up on you, one thing that just really struck me is how much you have already done in your career, but also how many different and distinct issues you've taken on, how many times you have been the first to do something, how you seem in my eyes to be able to juggle so many different balls at once. And so so when you know, you could spend your time doing a lot of different things and you do, how do you make decisions about how to spend your time and how to focus in on the things that matter most to you? Oh, that's a good question. One is, I always say, I feel like I can be like two things in a day. And so before having a child, like I could be a senator and an advocate in the same day, right? But now one of the things I am every day is a mom. And so a lot of my time really is around not just like parenting, but the workload of thinking about parenting, right? She's going to need these clothes in three days, like doing the laundry, or she's going to run out of milk. We got to go to the grocery store, or she's going to grow out of these clothes. We got to like, you know, um, or like she started walking, she's going to fall down the stairs. We've got to put up the baby gates. And then 
Outside of that, like I have ADHD, which I think can be a superpower if harnessed correctly. And so I've spent a lot of time figuring out how to utilize my ADHD, which can be energy and hyper-focus, sometimes deep passion for a lot of different issue areas and using that to make sure that my time is like really well structured. So making sure that I have work blocks laid out, that I have lunches scheduled because otherwise I'll never eat, that I have time set aside basically for all the things that I want to do. When I started getting really busy, I literally made a time map. So it was like an Excel spreadsheet that like chunked out like what I was going to do each day, um, wow. which can be overwhelming to see sometimes, but also really helpful to just see day to day that I'm getting all the things done that I want to get done. That's really interesting. So let's go back to Aaron as a kid. You and I grew up in the same town. So I have at least some reference points for your childhood, but what do I need to know about you, Aaron, as a child that helps explain who you are and who you became today? Aaron, the child, it was a voracious and early reader with a really strong reading comprehension and retention. I have almost like a visual memory so I can remember like where it is on the page. Helps me retain facts, like percentages and statistics. And Aaron, the kid, used to carry on this little notebook that when I heard like references, like pop culture references that I didn't understand, I would write them down. And then I would come home and I would ask Jeeves them because elder millennial, like Google didn't exist. Yahoo didn't exist. But I would put it into ask Jeeves so that I could understand what people were talking about or referencing. Yeah, reader, singer, love to sing and like have really wonderful family and parents who instilled in me like questions are good. Always ask why. And it's good to be someone who like doesn't do what you're supposed to do all the time just because that's how we do it. And I think that has definitely led me into a career of being like, just because we've always done it that way doesn't necessarily mean that it is a good way to do something. So that, yeah, me as a kid, happy. So I was reading an article that you, you gave an interview with Elle back in 2017. And you said, quote, I grew up in a very white community and I'm not white. Society's pretty straight and I'm not straight. We still live in a very male dominated culture and I'm a woman. I've pretty much grown up in a place where I'm always having to assert, prove and fight for my right to exist in people's eyes. And I'm just curious, mm. is that lived experience part of what made you want to serve, do you think, and organize? Organize, absolutely. I've always been deeply incensed by injustice, not mostly because it, it doesn't have to be, right? They're decisions that people make every day. There's no like higher power that ordained that racism has to exist. Like we choose to allow it to exist. And I think it's interesting because I'm Black biracial. So my dad is Black and my mom is white. But growing up in a white community in Minnesota, I was socialized as a Black girl, right? Like I, it was noticeable to everyone everywhere all the time that I was Black because everybody else was white. But I'm light-skinned, right? It is not always obvious to the world that we are in now that I'm a Black woman. And so it has been a really interesting journey to uh, to grow up and be socialized in our smallish community and certainly small in the fact that the internet didn't exist the way that it does now, right? So the people that you're around are pretty much the people you interact with. And then to grow up in a world where you can see any kind of person by opening an app and communicate with any kind of person. And so really like grappling with colorism and light skin privilege and understanding that I might've been raised to, because I was viewed as a black girl, 
But in the world that we're in now, I'm just ethnically ambiguous, right? And I always talk about using the privilege that the patriarchy and white supremacy have bestowed upon me, right? Because I'm a comfortable feminine woman. I'm a small woman. I'm a light-skinned Black girl. I'm, I don't, quote unquote, look gay, whatever that means. And so using those privileges to go into places where those privileges are instilled into our systems to dismantle them and throw the door open to invite more people who look like me or identify like me or people who've never been there before. So that's something that is definitely true that I, I know and use to further the cause of justice. Tell me a little bit about leaving high school, going to college. I know immediately you got into work organizing. Later, that led you into working for then Congressman Keith Ellison. Will you just tell me a little bit about that period of your life post high school and what was it like and what was driving you, I guess, to, to, to get involved in those ways? So I went to the University of St. Thomas, which is a private Catholic college university in Minnesota. And I was raised Lutheran. And like by Lutheran, I mean like the casual, like we love everybody, everybody's welcome here kind of Lutheran, right? And I, but I was very Christian. I was very like, I lettered in FCA, like my letter jacket has a cross on it for Fellowship of Christian Athletes. I was very devout and very, like it was a core part of my identity. And so I chose to go to St. Thomas because it was a core part of St. Thomas's identity. And come to find out that not everybody reads the Bible and gets the same messages that I did, that it, they would read like love everybody and they're like, except gay people. <laughs> and so when I got to St. Thomas, it was just like running headlong into this brick wall of someone who is, or like an institution that has wrapped itself in like my faith and then come out the other end with just like the most horrific findings about humanity and people and how we should treat each other. And so mm. it was enraging. And I think that faith was how I expressed my politics before I had politics. And so when mm. I got to St. Thomas, it was just like, for example, I was in the liturgical choir and each choir, there's four at St. Thomas, goes to Rome once every four years. So at some point, if you're in choir during all four years of college, you will go to Rome. And it was the liturgical choir's turn to go. And our choir director was a gay woman and she had a partner and a son and was going to bring her partner and son to the Rome trip. And they said, well, you can't stay in the same room together because you're not married. Marriage equality hadn't happened yet. So they couldn't be married. And she decided she wasn't going to come, which was the right decision. And didn't tell us why beforehand, because I think she wanted us to go and have fun. But we found out mm -hmm. and a bunch of us were like, we're not going. This is discriminatory. It's hateful. And one of my mentors at St. Thomas was a professor who was a woman partnered with a man and had been for like 30 years. They just had never gotten married, but they'd been together for a really long time. And she stood up and she was like, listen, I stay with my not husband in the same room every year mm -hmm. when we go on the J-term trip. So this isn't about marriage. It's about her being gay. And it, that just like, I was just furious. And that is really mm -hmm. how I started organizing on campus. And once you kind of peel that layer back, then you start seeing all of the different ways that discrimination shows up and all of the ways that people are marginalized and pushed aside. And I was doing organizing work on campus without knowing that's what I was doing. Like it started in my dorm room with three students we were like, what are we going to do? This is not okay. What are we going to do about this? And then we started like meeting and talking. And then we were like, okay, let's meet on Thursday. And then on Thursday, they, like a few of those students brought more students. And then I remember the next week we had to like, move out of my dorm room into the community room because there were just like, people are like, someone, we're going to do something. And so we just kind of mm. 
started meeting and we were organizing protests and rallies and we started a group called Unite UST. And then we helped the professors start like a adults group basically to support the students in our quest. And we really did not let the conversation go. And there were things that had happened, like someone had carved the N-word into one of the dormitory doors of one of the Black students. There were like old buildings that didn't have elevators that worked. And we had students in wheelchairs who like couldn't get to class and then would get docked points for being late. Like just stuff like that would happen all the time. And the movement got a lot bigger and, and it became really about like everything. And so that was how I got into organizing. And it was just like the time spent, the emotional energy spent was like invigorating to me because finally I felt the unfairness that exists here, we can do something about it and we should, and I mm. want to be part of that. So that was how I got into mm. organizing and, and why I still to this day consider myself an organizer. Cause it's like the thing that I did without knowing I was doing it. Seems like there was just something inside of you in some ways that was like destined for this. Yeah. Maybe that's a step too far, but, um, you you then went on to work for then Congressman, now Attorney General Keith Ellison, who you credit in part for giving you the nudge to run for office. Mm -hmm. What did that nudge mean for you? And how do you look back on that time now? And I guess one more question I'll throw in there. Do you think about giving other people nudges now that, that you Well, I that? nudge people all the time, like all the time. I It's not even mm -hmm. a nudge. Like it's a full on <laughs> elbow shot, you know. Um, I, I have, I have a lot of the members of the legislature look back and they're like, May Quaid was the one who made me do this. For Keith, it was, I worked for people to run their campaigns or work on their campaigns from the day I left college, the, yeah, the day after I graduated until the day I ran the first time. And I, before I decided to run for office, I always saw myself as somebody who organized and helped other people win. I think that there's a fear, especially among women, that when you run for office, and it's not unfounded, that people say gross things about you and they say horrible things about you that they don't say about men, right? They say bad things about all candidates and some of them are universal and then some of them are not. And you add on the fact that I'm Black and queer and I was not, I was not even 30 yet and I am 37 years old, but I know that I don't look 37 years old today. I certainly didn't look 28 years old when I was 28 years old. And I was just like, oh, the hassle. But Keith asked me, like, mm. what are you waiting for to change the things that matter to you? And I really have a good answer for that. What was I waiting for? To be more passionate, to know more about the community that I lived in my entire life, to know more about organizing. There really wasn't anything. And it was a good nudge to say, I think that you would be good at this. I think you would like it. But it really wasn't something like I was not a person who grew up saying, I'm going to run for office. I wasn't even like mm. an adult who says I'm going to run for office. So um, it was like a totally different mindset of, oh, wait, I could be one of those people. Huh. And mm. I was in part because you can't be what you can't see. I was the third black woman elected to the Minnesota legislature ever. Myself and Ilhan were like number three and four. We were elected the same year. There had been two previously and Rena Moran was the only one serving. And so it just you don't see it and you don't think you can do it. And so that was, it was just like this, oh yeah, wait, I can do that. It was a hard election year. It was 2016. So it was the turning point when politics really, like the political discourse just coarsened as a polite way of saying it a lot. <laughs> and so it was a really interesting year to, to run for the first time yeah. as the person I am. Yeah. 
I can only imagine how since then you have been both inside and in public service roles, and you've also been organizing. And it sounds a little bit like you view the work in a similar way, whether you're inside or outside, I guess, like where generally, and now you're serving as a state senator, where do you feel like you personally have the most impact? Is it inside? Is it outside? Or is it just depends on the context and the situation? I I think that there are so many ways to make change that that I don't think that I could say that there's an inside outside more impact. Like I on the outside of the legislature was I was a state representative for 2 years from 2017 to 2019. And then from 2019 to 2022 or 2023, so for 4 years, I was an advocate. In those 4 years, I built a movement and coalition and campaign to remove Minnesota's abortion restrictions. And mm. we won the lawsuit that we filed two weeks after Roe v. Wade was overturned. Without being a lawmaker, we got many of Minnesota's abortion restrictions deemed unconstitutional and unenforceable. That's a huge impact. It was an immediate huge yeah. impact. And then as a state senator, I was able to repeal those unconstitutional laws. And so I, I just think there's so many ways to make change. And the, it's sometimes it's like, what's easier it is easier to not have to raise money and run for office and like hmm. just smash through this really nuts schedule for five months. But it's also harder to try to explain laws that you know the best to people who are in the seats of the lawmaking, right? Yeah, I don't know. There's not one way. There's so many ways. Um, In 2018, you ran for lieutenant governor endorsed by the DFL. And I was just watching your announcement speech today, which was really incredible. You're such a gifted speaker and I was ready to vote for you all over again. But what did you, what did you learn from that race and from that experience? That must've been an intense time. It was. And I certainly people who were on the campaign. So I was an Aaron Murphy supporter before I was on the ticket. I really only joined the ticket in June and then the primary was in August. And so of all the people who were part of the campaign, I was a part of it for the, I was like on the ticket for the shortest amount of time. So for me, it was a really whirlwind summer that mm. went from we were out of session and I didn't have another job as a state representative um, to like, I'm now going across the state to fish fries and town hall meetings and mm. interviews and fishing visits and like all of visiting farms and then doing a lot of call times. You got to raise a lot of money when you run for statewide office. And so I learned one, how to be managed, which is a hard thing Hmm. for me, not as an employee, but as somebody who's supposed to like, you know, I was lieutenant governor candidate, but I actually had a whole team that managed my time, right? I didn't get to pick what I did every day. Everybody else got to pick what I did that day. And I became, which is something I've lost since the pandemic, but my public speaking skills at the end of that campaign were like amazing. And in part because my staffer, who was with me all the time, had a Bachelor of Fine Arts from the University of Minnesota and was an, is an actor. And so after every speech, he would give me notes. And I speak really fast. Even when I'm trying to speak slow, I'm speaking fast. And that's certainly true in person. And by the end of that campaign, I had learned how to speak slowly enough for people to understand me and to really punctuate what I was saying and like how to crescendo at the right moments. It is a muscle that I've probably lost a little bit, but that's probably the thing I learned the most about myself. I got to learn Hmm. so much about Minnesota. 
and Minnesotans and what matters to them mm. and how the way we categorize people progressive or moderate or conservative, it doesn't really fit how people are in the world. And it is not a mm. useful tool to figure out how to not only govern, but how to talk about how you want to govern. You find that people who might identify as conservative, if you like ask them to explain like some of the things that they want done in the world sound more progressive than like Bernie Sanders, right? Mm. And so these labels just aren't weren't that useful. And I, I loved getting to meet the people of Minnesota and talk to them about what they want and need in this world and bring together a vision that is unapologetically bold about the things we can accomplish together. I think I've always had a lot of faith in the things that we can accomplish together. And I think that they're mm. big things. And I don't think that tinkering on the edges is like a useful way to think about getting things done. Like I've never met anyone mm. who is like, you know what I would love is just like a little bit of things to change because there's not much wrong. A lot of people are like, do you see those people who are unhoused or people who are hungry? Some of the best things that we've done in this country when we look back were never tinkers. They were always big, bold things. And so hmm. I try to like live into the, I vision myself in the future looking back and being like, yeah, why did you do that so small when you were trying to tackle a big problem? Not that incrementalism can't be useful. If that's what you can get done. Yeah. But when you have the ability to do the thing. That is a brilliant segue. Minnesota has just wrapped a really historic legislative session. Some are referring to it as the Minnesota miracle. Can yeah. you help us unpack a little bit about what's just happened and maybe help put it in the context, not only of Minnesota, but also the broader U.S. because it just in the past few weeks, it is receiving a lot of attention. Mm -hmm. So Minnesota is, it's a purple state. We are a purple state. We are the longest voting blue state in the nation. Okay. So when everybody lost their minds for Ronald Reagan, we did not. So we have been voting blue longer than any other state in this union, but we are purple. We, we, you know, we are pretty evenly divided, but in this last election, I think highly motivated voters on issues of democracy, reproductive rights, and gun violence delivered Minnesota a DFL. So Democrats in Minnesota are DFLers, Democratic Farmer Labor Party, a trifecta. And so we had the first trifecta in 10 years. And 10 years ago, when the DFL had the trifecta, the very first words that were uttered, like the, they hadn't even been sworn in yet, was the word overreach. And it affected everything that they did. And what I think ends up happening is when you have people and movements that are working to not just get you elected, but like working in community on the solutions that people need. And then you bring them to the legislature and the people who are in power are like, yeah, but we don't want other people to think that we helped too much. Like it's really disheartening. And we went on mm. to lose the trifecta after that. This time, not only were there people who had been there 10 years ago, they were like, we're not doing that again. But there have been just incredible amounts of community movements that have started and coalitions that have started that have been working on policies like fine tuning them and building support and community across the state to get these passed. And so when we had the trifecta, I don't think we went in saying we're going to have the most historic legislative session in Minnesota history. I think we went in saying we're going to do all the things we said we'd come here to do, number one. Yeah. And then at the same time, we weren't trying to contextualize every piece of legislation into the broader picture of all the pieces of legislation and say, oh, we can't be that we can't do that much. We can only do some. So what are we going to give up? It would be like, OK, we're looking at the education bill. What is important in education? And we put those things in. And what can we fund? And we put those things in. 
education done. Okay. Now we're on to health and human services. What things are important? Put those things in. So I think part of the reason that the most historic session piece is becoming more of a conversation now and wasn't necessarily one during session is because that's not how we were thinking about it. We were thinking of what did we come here to fix? The second part I'll say is that the House has been in DFL control since 2018. The Senate just flipped, right? We had a one seat majority. So the the House has their majority muscle built up so strong. They have on Mm. their wall of their caucus room, they had all of the top 20 bills and the authors that they wanted to get passed. I think that if a senator had seen that, they would have been like, oh, those are the top 20. That's we were just coming in. We had not had a majority leader in 10 years and we elected one. We had a one seat majority. Half of the first term class are brand new to the legislature and almost half the caucus was first termers. So we were really building our majority muscle at the very beginning of session two. So there was a little bit of the House has heard and passed a bunch of these bills four times already. And so that's part of why we were able to get a lot done too, is that they were vetted in committee. They were vetted by community. Part of what we were talking to constituents about when we were running is look at what we could have gotten done. Everything the house got done in the last four years. And now we got a chance to actually get it done and sign into law. I I read that with that big list of the top 20 pieces, every time a new one was passed, DJ Khaled's All I Do Is Win was played. And I just thought I, that, that energy- house. That and that right. in the house. Yes, I've heard that too. We the Senate is much to my dismay, a little bit stuffier. I yeah, can't yeah. imagine a world where that would happen in the Senate caucus room. But I was in the house, and I had a lot of house energy, and I would have been there for it. <laughs> <laughs> I guess one question I have for you is: I put myself in this bucket. I think, especially since 2016, but maybe before then, a lot of politics. And people's attention and the media's attention is on national. And yeah, like I say, I put myself in that bucket. Can you kind of give me your take on that from where you sit and maybe make the case for people like myself to spend a little bit more time thinking about what's going on in their own backyard? What's your take on that? Yes, I can. Part of the reason I think people focus on the national one is that we have it, it, like fewer and fewer local medias that exist across this country and national media is talking to a national audience and we don't share anything nationally except our federal Congress, right? That's one of the things we share. Or if a policy is passed by a federal Congress, it affects all of us, but not necessarily, you know, Kentucky passes a drag show ban, which they did, that does not affect Minnesota, right? So That's part of the reason why. The other part is that Donald Trump just sucks up a lot of air. He says things that people, you know, five, 10 years ago could never have imagined saying, even in private, let alone in public, and then being rewarded for it. And just the Overton window moving on what's acceptable to say about people or what's acceptable to do in public and laws to break, whatever, that's attention grabbing. And it's horrifying to a large swath of the country. And it really, it is, I don't want to call it a circus or a sideshow because it's not, it impacts people, but it really is. Oh my God, am I looking at this? Am I seeing this? So that's part of it. But the my pitch to people like yourself about why paying attention to state and local government is so important. The first part is that the support or lack thereof for a bill in federal Congress has no bearing on its ability to get passed. Every bill is likelihood of getting passed is about the same, regardless of how people feel about it, which is incredibly hmm. disheartening to me. Yeah. So that's one piece. Congress wasn't designed to to be as broken as it is, but there are people who are in Congress who want it to be broken enough to work to break it. 
And I'm not a person that's like, Washington's broken. Like Washington is the place where we send all of the people who represent us together. And if we keep buying into that narrative, then we're saying we're broken and that it's a way for us to like disregard ourselves. But there are people who are elected and serve in Washington that went there to break it and they're succeeding sometimes. But at your state government represents fewer people, impacts so much more of your life. Like your day-to-day life is yeah. impacted by your state government. That's where they do or don't fund your schools. Like 10% of school funding comes from federal government. Almost all of it comes from your state or your school mm-hmm. district. Like the age of consent to marry decided by your state, not the federal government. The projects that they build in your communities, the speed limits that they set, like these are all the day-to-day things. These are all things that happen in your state or in your county or in your school boards or at your city councils. And so, um, you know, we focus on the national because it's like the media eye there when all of the work is happening in your state and down. And I think that's something that the Republican Party really realized in 2010 when they started investing a lot in state races. And we have seen the outcomes of that as the Supreme Court continues to be like, oh, leave it to the states. Half the states are going to say ban abortion, ban gender affirming care. There was just a Republican that came out and said, we're going to oppose universal meals in schools, which is a shocking policy position. But I would imagine that that might be coming in in some states. And so um, we don't necessarily have a strong national identity, but we do have state identity. Certainly Minnesota, we call it Minnesota exceptionalism. I believe Minnesota is exceptional. Hmm. And so your ability to influence what happens in your state, your ability to impact what happens in your state and what the state is doing impacting you is all just much more than it is at the federal level. Great pitch. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about what life as a legislator looks like? And I don't know, what do you think we in the general public maybe get wrong about what it takes to serve in public office? The first thing that people get wrong about serving in public office is that you have to like go through the steps or be a lawyer or have a certain kind of profile. The thing that has served me best to being a lawmaker as having worked as in the service industry, as a server or in Target or in Hmm. retail. Yeah, it's customer service work. I get yelled at all the time about laws that I didn't pass. And I would, you know, some laws I wasn't even born when they passed. But it's not my job to be like, I can't help you. I'm here to help you figure out what a solution is. Similarly, when I worked for Target in store, I didn't make the return policy. I didn't decide that you only had 30 days or 90 days, but I would get yelled at about it. And I'd be like, I understand that that's frustrating. I don't have power to make it different. I can help you with something else in the store. You know, I can try to make the situation better. So that I would say is the biggest misconception is that you have to have some sort of special law degree or whatever to be in public service or that people like you aren't in public service. They are. And it's important that people like everywhere think I'm the kind of person who should be making the laws that impact the people of this state because we have a citizen legislature. That's why we only are part-time. We're part-time legislature. So we do need more different kinds of people. It matters. People tend to, we're like authors. They say, write what you know. People write policies about what they know. And if the legislature is only comprised of one type of person, they're going to write policies about one type of experience. And if we don't have more experiences, we don't have good policy. Life of a legislator depends on the year and the month. So odd numbered years are budget years. And we are in session from the first Monday after the first Sunday of January, basically sometime between January 2nd and January 7th, we go into session. We have committee. 
committee is a lot like college. Monday, Wednesday, Friday from 8.30 to 10. Tuesday, Thursday from 3 mm. to 5. And that's where bills get heard. And we dig through the language and we hear testimony and take amendments and hopefully make the language is exactly what we want it to be. Then there's floor session, which can be anywhere from 30 minutes to 15 hours. And that's where we debate bills that have been worked through the committee process. Then there's constituent meetings. So there's everything from housing groups to public utilities, to the golf association, to the science student groups, they have their days at the Capitol. And so you meet with your constituents. Sometimes there's rallies, you speak at rallies. And then a lot of emails, constituent emails, emails from the agencies, emails from reporters, like you're just, you're reading a lot of stuff. I spent a lot of time reading and they're long and late nights. They start early and they end late. So that's like January through May. And then yeah. after that, go back to your job for a lot of us, and then try to senator on the margins, which is what I try to do because I have a full-time job now. In even years, it's a bonding and policy year. So after we set the state budget, we appropriate the money, we balance the books. Then in the even years, so that's next year, we'll do bonding, which is essentially borrowing for public infrastructure, roads, bridges, hospitals, mental health facilities, some nonprofit stuff, lead pipes, those kinds of things. And then there's also policy setting. So for example, there is a piece of my READ Act, which is a bill about literacy for students in schools. When we were passing the bill off of the floor the final time, I caught this sentence that it isn't quite exactly what I wanted to be. It's like a 100-page bill, so it's not surprising that I didn't catch it. But it's just a policy change. It's not going to change the amount of money that needs to get appropriated to implement it. And it's not something that I think is going to negatively impact people between now and next year, but I'd like to change it so that it's clear. So we'll do policy changes so that the words mean what they mean, or they mean what we intended them to mean, or they mean what we want them to mean now and not what they meant back then. That kind of stuff. What are the best parts of the job? And maybe what are some of the tougher parts? The best parts of the job are being able to meet constituents' needs and Minnesotans' needs to be able to say, yes, I can help you with that. I can fix that. We can work on that together to meet people who are passionate and knowledgeable about so many things like the knowledge. I always say that every time I meet a constituent, they're always like, yes, I'm your constituent and I'm the head of the African-American Babies Coalition. Like they always just are the most impressive people that have the most wonderful careers and like life dedication and this like really great knowledge. I called somebody hmm. yesterday because I had a question about childcare policy and she said, oh, your constituent knows everything about that. And I was like, of course she does. Set me up with her. So that is, that's probably one of the best parts, solving big problems and just knowing that things are going to be better because of what you did. Amazing. Yeah. The hardest part of the job is keeping up on my email. I'd like to be responsive, but I get a lot of emails and not all of them are from constituents. So there was a day where I got like a thousand emails opposing a bill that I was chief authoring, but only one of them was from a constituent. But when a thousand emails oh, wow. come into your inbox, you miss what's actually for that's buried in that. That's tough. Yeah. It's tough when you can't get 101 votes or 102 votes for something, right? Like a bill that you really care about, that a lot of you care about, but there's not enough in both chambers to support it. That's hard too, especially when your party has full control. Um, yeah. And then not sleeping. I think sleep is important mm -hmm. and it's hard not to sleep. And I miss my baby. Yeah, I can imagine. At least on the email thing, maybe AI solves that if the next couple of years. I don't know. Like maybe there's a chance that tell you, there's I'm some sort of filtering system. The crap out of AI. 
Are you really? Oh, I'm gonna be I regulating didn't expect AI. this to go here. Oh, yeah. Tell me, tell me more about that. Get, give me the, give me what? Oh, okay. Tell, tell well, me more about that. I had a bill this year. It was a bill that would make sexual deep fakes a crime, making those because that's 96% of deep fakes are sexual deep fakes, which is just wild. And it also yeah. prohibits the use of deep fakes around election time just to interfere with an election. But I don't believe that making things crimes like stops a problem. And I have a different bill called Age Appropriate Design Code, which requires tech companies at the design phase of an app, a feature, a product, an algorithm to incorporate consumer protection, especially for young people, into the design before mm. it gets released. We have consumer protections for everything in the physical world, and we have none in the digital world. And I believe that if the age-appropriate design code had existed before this rapid advancement of AI, it wouldn't look the way that it does now because it is, there are no parameters. There are no regulations. It is absolutely terrifying. And I don't think Congress is going to be able to move fast enough. I do believe part yeah. of the reason when you go to a website and it says accept or reject the cookies, it's because California passed a law. California yeah. state legislature did. And since you can't really draw a line around the internet, now all of us have the benefit of that. Similarly, I plan to pass legislation regulating both AI and tech companies, especially the ones that are harming children, so that everybody can benefit. And they were, big tech was successful in stopping my bill this year. They will not be next year and my bill will be more strict. I, I It is appalling what we've allowed them to get away with just to make money. Yeah. Wow. I didn't expect our conversation to go there, but I'm glad it did. That's heartening to know. That makes sense. Couple last questions for you before I let you go. I'm just curious, can you give us any thoughts, predictions on 2024, both in Minnesota and beyond? How are you thinking about things? How are you feeling? Yeah. What do you think is going to happen? Yeah. 2024 in Minnesota. I think our session is going to be lovely. I think it's going to be less chaotic or like less like breakneck pace than this year. I think the election, I think the House, the DFL retains the House, maybe picks up two seats would be my guess. I haven't looked at it. I think the Senate's going to pick up a lot. And then I think this, I think the matchup will be Trump and Biden. I think Donald Trump loses. I worry about what he breaks on his way to losing. I think that the House of Representatives, the Congress House of Representatives will flip back to being in Democratic control. I think it's like a 50-50 chance that the Senate flips back to being Republican control. Maybe more of a chance that it flips back to Republican control. Yeah. And I think Joe Biden wins the election. Yeah. Good predictions. We'll check back in with those, but that yeah, sounds sensible yeah. to me. What did I forget to ask you about today? Anything else that you think would be good? I don't know. That would be good in terms of understanding you, your life experience, and the role you play in both organizing and in public service. My mom, when I was in college, I had gone to college to be like a business major and I hated it for the three weeks hmm. that I was doing it. And my mom was like, why are you going to be a business major? You've never been interested in that at all. And it was because I wanted to know that when I graduated, there'd be like financial security. And my mom said, study what you're passionate about. The money will follow. And hmm. she was not wrong. She was wrong in the sense that like, there's like millennials are going to live less wealthy lifestyles than their parents because boomers have pulled up the ladder behind them. It's just true. Wealth inequality is widening, not getting smaller. And, and hopefully we can reverse those trends. But, but I, so like, I don't make as much money today 
as I would if I even did the same kind of work, but in the private sector. I know that, but I choose the nonprofit world and public service. Um, but like, I am passionate about what I do and I'm not like just slogging through like this entire career of just like, well, I guess I get paid a lot. And so I think that's always my advice to people is like, you have to do the things you're passionate about because passion at some point is going to be the only thing that's going to get you through the things that are slogged, right? Like answering all the emails or like yeah. telling, explaining to someone the 50th time that there really is no compromise on abortion, right? Like you either have control over your body or you don't, there is no middle ground. So that is something that like I've always held on to. And I'm really glad my mom told me that. And I am an optimist and that like, incredibly optimistic and people used to tell me I like one could even call it idealistic and I remember people used to tell me when I was younger mm. like oh you'll lose that when you get older and I have not and in fact mm. I am more optimistic mm. and more idealistic because now I know more mm. about what we actually can do and like where those levers of power are to make things better and so I'm just like optimistic about what we can accomplish together and impatient to get to the end, but knowing that I probably won't see the, you know, full, full liberation and justice for all of the people, but that's okay. I'll get to be a part of it. What wise words, where can folks follow you and your work and anything else, any other issues, causes, et cetera, that you want to plug before I let you go? Sure. You can follow me at Erin May Quaid, E-R-I-N-M-A-Y-E-Q-U-A-D-E on all social media platforms. Although I would like Twitter is my big thing and Twitter is horrible now. Elon Musk ruined it. So I'm not like a, I used to be a prolific tweeter and now I can, yeah. it's not worth it. It's like, why? I'm going to get into TikTok. I'm going to, I'm on TikTok all the time. I don't like hmm. TikToks, but I will. I just haven't had the time. I, I could see you being very good on TikTok it's as a communication tool as many things. So I look forward to seeing that. Yes. Yeah. I think you got to find someone to help you with that part. Maybe. I don't know. Probably. How, how many years until that. your kid could do that? Well, anyway, anyway. Uh, okay. I don't know. Uh, TikTok soon to come. <laughs> TikTok soon to come. <laughs> and issues that matter to me, reproductive justice, certainly. Every person should have the right to have a child, not have a child, raise children they choose to have in safe and sustainable communities, and have gender freedom and bodily autonomy. It's a framework created by Black women in the 90s that are pretty much the core tenets of all the things that I do. I think that... We haven't really, really paid enough attention to, this always sounds like a conspiracy theory, but I'm just going to lay it out. There is a plan. It's a, there's a literal playbook. It's called Project Blitz, and it is by Dominionists. Dominionists are um, a specific sect of evangelical Christianity that believes that um, Christians are, white Christians are called to take dominion over seven pillars of society. So the arts and education and government and blah, blah. So Amy Coney Barrett is a dominionist. Ted Cruz is a dominionist. Mike Pence is a dominionist. And their playbook has been open for a really long time. And I think one of the things that is just useful for folks to know is that like what we're seeing happening in our country right now, the attack on LGBTQ people, the attack on abortion rights, the attack on public education, the mm. disregard for climate, the climate crisis, all of that is like under the umbrella of dominionism. And I think if we don't start... Mm understanding the end goal, right? Sometimes it's like, why, like, why do you, why do they care? Why are they doing this? Is that it, there is a goal there and it is to institute a white Christian theocracy in the state or in the United States. And there's like billions of dollars in dark money that goes into institutions like the Federalist Society to get judges or campaigns to state legislatures or 
faux think tanks that like are in DC and train school board members and county, you know, to understand that that is very real and it is a very long-term plan that people have been executing for a long time. And as a Christian, as a Lutheran, always highly offended when my faith is used, stolen, right? And perverted in order to oppress people. And so I feel like it is yeah. my moral duty as both a Christian and a person who works in the movement to highlight that. And I'm always working hmm. to sabotage white Christian nationalism. So that's my like whole, my whole thing is when I sabotage it. Sounds good to me. Senator Aaron McQuaid, I am so grateful to you for taking some time out of your day to spend with me. Um, I'm, I'm a big fan of you, and I think you are a really a great leader and example for us in Minnesota, and I think you're doing really important and wonderful work. Thank you so much for your time today. It was so great to talk to you. Thank you.